Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But we begin today with the calls for mandatory vaccinations in the B.C. school system. Uh, B.C. getting set to talk about this in a committee now. Uh, will they do it district by district, have a patchwork of rules around the province? Let's discuss right now with my guest, Karen Ranaletta. Karen is the president of QPBC, the union that represents school support workers in the province. Karen, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. How many uh, school support workers does QP represent? We represent a swath, uh, just over 30,000 folks. So that includes custodians, uh, caretakers, education assistants, clerical staff, trades, youth support workers, IT, bus drivers, strong start instructors, uh, pretty much everybody uh, except the you know folks represented by my friends, the BCTF. Right. And I have uh, education assistants myself in my own family. So I'm well aware of the work that your people do. You guys make the school system run. Let's talk about the mandatory vaccination in schools. Where do you stand on that? Well, uh, as you probably know, QBC has supported the efforts of the PHO um, in their fight against COVID-19. And, um, you know, we see this uh, a vaccine mandate in K-12 as the next logical step to protect uh, our members and our communities. Okay, so you want it. You want mandatory vaccination. We are in support, yeah. Yeah. Okay, what do you think about the approach right now? It seems like, I don't know, it seems like the province kind of dragging their feet on this. I mean, now they're setting up a committee to talk about it, or maybe they'll let individual school districts make up their own rules on on it. What do you think of that? I wouldn't go as far as saying that provincial government is dragging their feet. The uh, education partners have been meeting throughout the pandemic. We all dropped everything that we were doing Tuesday afternoon uh, to come together to kind of figure out what we were going to do moving forward. Because this isn't a provincial health order um, and that these will be, like you said, employer policies, um, we are trying to do everything we can to avoid having a patchwork approach to this. So by bringing the partners together... Um, the idea is that we are going to be working together to hopefully, you know, as best as we can, develop a uniform set of standards and guidelines that can be applied across the province, knowing that, you know, we've got all these districts that are autonomous. Yeah, so you would like to see like a province-wide vaccine mandate for school support workers all across BC? Uh, I think what we respond to is if, if our employers are going to be rolling out these policies and we know that this is going to happen across the province, that we're looking for consistency um, through some sort of guidelines or standards that, you know, we have some input into. Okay. Speaking to Karen Ranaletta, president of QPBC, the union that represents school support workers, they want mandatory vaccination uh, in the school system. You mentioned 30,000 members, bus drivers, school support workers, janitors, secretaries, uh, any idea of the vaccination rate among your members? Uh, well, our QP represents, you know, it'll be in proportion to what the population is. So, no, there's no way we would know 
exactly what the vaccination rate is across our membership, but it would be pretty uh, consistent with what is in our communities. What if you have someone who doesn't want to get the vaccine? Well, we encourage them to get vaccinated. Yeah, what if they don't, and, though? Well, I mean, that's part, and that's part of these conversations that will be happening at the at the committee level, um, you know, we do, we are, we are professionals in labor relations um, and we are going to do everything we can to advocate for the rights of workers. And that includes looking closely at what steps will be taken for those who refuse vaccinations and what consequences will follow. Okay. Well, what if the, what if the province turns around and says, we're bringing in mandatory vaccination and if you don't want to be vaccinated, you're fired. Uh, well, then that is something that we will deal with if it comes. Yeah, but would you resist that? Would you fight against it? I mean, that's what they're—that's what Justin Trudeau announced yesterday, right? Like he's saying right. that uh, federal civil servants, if you don't get vaccinated, you're, you're basically out of here. You, you will—you will go on unpaid leave, which is basically fired. Well, unpaid leaves of absence are different than being terminated from your position, right? right. So again, these are these are all conversations that will be had at the table. Um, and in any any case, you know, our job is to represent our members and um, advocate for them, you know, to, to protect their rights as much yeah. as we can. What are your people telling you, like are most QP members in the BC school system saying, like, bring it on, we want mandatory vaccination, or are you, are you getting any pushback on it? There's widespread support amongst the membership. You know, we didn't yeah. make this decision. I certainly didn't make this decision by myself. This is something that you know, in consultation with the leadership of our president's council and hearing from our members that this is something that has widespread support. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Karen. And this is an exchange in the B.C. legislature yesterday on this topic. And you're going to hear liberal MLA Jackie Taggart here questioning Jennifer Whiteside, the B.C. education minister, on this idea of a regional or district by district vaccine mandate so different vaccine rules in 60 different school districts have a listen to this and i'll get your thoughts on it when it comes to vaccination of teachers and staff the premier's choosing to sidestep the issue and put it on to individual school boards creating a potential patchwork of programs across the province. We do not have a public health order uh, that would allow a provincial approach. We, we have a, a situation where, as the member well knows, having, been a, having served as a school trustee, that, uh, that school boards are the employers of school staff. And so I convened a, a meeting of, uh, of all of our education partners yesterday to support the development of guidelines that, that will inform the decisions that boards will make when they are considering mandatory vaccination policies for their, for their staff. Okay, that was strange when she said we don't have a provincial mandate, so we have to do this. You know, it sounded like she wanted this district by district approach, and she mentioned a meeting yesterday. Were you in on that meeting, Karen? Yes, yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think of this district? We already talked about this briefly, but yeah. the di- the district by district approach. What are your concerns there? Well, I mean, our concerns are that there needs to be consistency, and I actually think what the minister has done by calling the partners together, like we have throughout this whole pandemic, um, to come together to at least try to develop some sort of uniform set of guidelines is the best way forward because we don't have, um, we don't have a provincial health order. Yeah. This is, you know, this is going to be mandated. You know, these are going to be employer policies.
Yeah. Okay. It just so, seems kind of. It just seems kind of weird to me that they are talking about. Oh, we can't do anything because we don't have an order. I just think that's that's weird. But let me ask you this. Finally, the the BC Nurses Union, your colleagues at a different union, when they brought in mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers, that union sounded the alarm, opposed it, and said if they do that, if the government was to do that, and they were to fire unvaccinated nurses, it would cause the healthcare system to collapse. Do you think there's any similar concern in the education system that if they bring in mandatory vaccination for teachers and school support workers that you could have you could have problems in running schools if a, if a bunch of unvaccinated teachers and support workers don't want to be vaccinated? It's always a concern. Sure. Um, do I think the system will collapse? I think that's a bit extreme. Karen, we're following it closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now and long-term care homes in British Columbia, care homes in BC, their residents, the people who love them have suffered the most through this. More than 800 long-term care residents lost to COVID during this pandemic. That was the focus yesterday of a brand new report issued by my next guest, Isabel McKenzie, British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Um, Ms. McKenzie, thank you for coming on once again. My pleasure. Okay, when we look back at this pandemic and the tragic loss of more than 800 residents in long-term care, what uh, when you look back on it, do you, do you think there were were there mistakes made, or do you think that things were done as best as we could have done them? Well, there is an argument we did the best we could with what we knew at the time, and the purpose of looking back is to say, okay, we know more now, and given what we know now, uh, what could we have done differently that might have made a difference? And so from that perspective, when we look back, there are some things we see now that uh, had, an, had a bearing on whether outbreaks uh, grew in size. And we can see that those sites that had lower levels of paid sick leave were more likely to experience a larger outbreak. Sites with lower levels of registered nurses were more likely to have larger outbreak sites with multi-bed uh, or shared rooms, and that really our, our testing strategy uh, maybe could have been a, a more cohesive and uniform strategy of testing everybody early and frequently and allowing us to isolate the cases uh, sooner. Mm-hmm. Did the outbreaks largely begin with long-term care staff in most of these homes? They did, and that was as we expected. Residents aren't coming and going out of the care homes. In assisted living, they are to a greater degree, but um, really what we were seeing was staff coming in, and staff are also the people in the very close physical contact with residents, remembering how really this virus is transmitted. It it wasn't uh, really transmitted by touching surfaces, although that's possible. Really what we discovered as we worked our way through it was it was the kind of close personal contact that people providing care have and that's what was reflected in the transmission right we see the deadline approaching now for all long-term staff to be vaccinated in care homes how do you think that is going to go will it make a difference and do you think it's rolling out well I think it will make a difference. And as you know, uh, earlier this week, uh, my colleague, Dr. Henry, added the uh, visitors to mandatory vaccination. And, you know, when you look at the the trend line, 
you can see that really the cases in long-term care grew uh, in tangent with the cases in the community. Uh, And then, you know, in about February, you start to see those lines diverge. And that's the effect of the vaccine. You can see that the cases in long-term care start dropping, uh, but the cases in the community actually still continued on an upward trajectory for a while. So uh, we know that these vaccines are effective. Now, we've also now learned uh, of the waning protection, particularly in immunocompromised and more uh, older, frail uh, citizens. So we've added the booster shots, and those are rolling out now, and that's a good thing. And most uh, staff, uh, the vast majority, are vaccinated and have been vaccinated for some time, but it doesn't take many unvaccinated uh, staff to introduce the virus into an environment where people's protection was waning a bit. And so we've seen a little resurgence of uh, some clusters of outbreaks in the last uh, six or seven weeks, and and hopefully we'll we'll be able to damp that back down. Right. Right. Yeah, that third dose issue, I think, is important. That third booster dose that we're seeing that long-term care residents will uh, be offered. And you mentioned that there's some new studies emerging that the first two doses of the vaccine can can begin to wane and people need a booster shot to increase their protection. Do you think that long-term care staff should also be offered that booster shot, third dose? That may, that may come. Um, I think what public health is going to be looking at are uh, the data as they stratify by population types. So the waning protection is not universal. It's not clear that the protection that you and I achieved from our vaccines is waning over time. Uh, the, the, the evidence is showing those who have less robust uh, immune systems, who, who mount uh, less robust uh, antibody responses, are the population groups that are seeing the waning protection, immunocompromised individuals, the frail elderly in care homes and and the frail elderly in the community. Those were the very people we targeted at the beginning when vaccines were scarce to get the vaccine for exactly that reason. So I think what we will be doing is following uh, uh, real-world evidence around is is it that it takes longer in younger populations before we see the waning protection. So maybe you and I will need a booster shot, but we don't need it until 12 months after. Um, I I think that is emerging. And remember, um, certainly for myself, I think I had my second shot at the beginning of July. So I'm not six months out from my second shot yet. So even if I was going to need a booster, it's not time for me to get it yet. All right. Speaking to Isabel McKenzie, British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, her brand new report on COVID and long-term care. One of the things that you highlight in your report is the need for expanded sick leave that only 60% of staff in long-term care facilities are entitled to paid sick leave. I mean, you've got a lot of casual part-time workers there who may not be eligible for sick pay. Do you think everyone who works in a long-term care home should have paid sick days off to prevent the possibility of them coming to work when they're sick. Absolutely. And I think it is something that arguably everyone should have, uh, but on a priority basis, uh, people who work in 
um, healthcare, whether it's a hospital or a long-term care home, where the people they're coming in contact with are very vulnerable to any infection, frankly. COVID-19, yes, but the same would be said of influenza, pneumonia, the common cold, uh, that we should not be having people come to work because they won't get paid if they uh, come to work when they're ill. So I think we do need to address that, and I think we'll see uh, improvements not just around uh, COVID-19, but infectious diseases uh, overall in, in our vulnerable populations. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the some of the very interesting statistics showing tracing COVID outbreaks at long-term care homes that had a lower ratio of uh, registered nurses as the staff there. Do you think that we need more highly trained nurses, like registered nurses, RNs, in care homes? I do. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something where this has crept up on us over time. We, Over the last 20 years, we have been reducing uh, registered nurse coverage in long-term care for a whole host of reasons, um, some to do with program design, some to do with scarcity, and, and some to do with financial constraints. And the challenge is that on a day-to-day basis in a care home, you may not notice the impact of not having as many registered nurses because on a day-to-day basis in care homes, it's people living and just getting a care. It's not a hospital. People aren't getting fixed or cured. But it's when a crisis happens that you notice that difference. And so the crisis called COVID-19 came along. And when that hit our care homes, those that didn't have as much of the higher level clinical training and expertise um, and strategic thinking that comes with being a registered nurse were less able to contain their outbreaks on average. Right. We touched earlier on the new rule that's just been introduced that you must show proof of vaccination now to visit a long-term care home. Let me play a, a clip here for you uh, from Dr. Bonnie Henry on this point, and then I'll get your other thoughts on the other side of that. So here's Dr. Bonnie Henry here talking about how you must be vaccinated to visit long-term care. Starting October 12th, visitors to long-term care and assisted living will need to show their vaccine card for proof of full immunization. And starting October 26th, in line with uh, the orders around uh, healthcare workers in acute care and community care settings, to visit in acute care settings, you must also show that you're fully vaccinated. Those who are not fully vaccinated will not be able to visit in healthcare settings. Okay, I know you support this uh, this move to require proof of vaccination for visitors in long-term care. Do you think that's something they could have done sooner? Well, I think, um, you know, looking back in hindsight, I think there's a lot of things we realize, yes, we could have done sooner. But I think uh, many of these uh, types of initiatives, there's there's discussions in the background and and things that, uh, you know, may not be apparent to everybody around why it was difficult to do it earlier rather than when it was done. I think the important thing is it's in place now. And and when we look at, yes, we have experienced some uh, resurgence of outbreaks, not as dramatically as we had before, and we thankfully aren't seeing anywhere near the 30% case fatality rate that we were seeing in previous waves. So, you know, we could... Uh, argue that it's coming just in time in the sense of everybody's been given ample opportunity to be fully vaccinated and we're heading into what we call respiratory season. So the expectation is that, you know, we're going to 
potentially see more of it. And so now is the time to really make sure that um, we're, we're protecting people in long-term care as much as possible by anybody coming in right. uh, needs to be vaccinated. My, gu- my guest is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Final question for you. While I have you here, the the heat-related deaths, the heat dome deaths that we saw from the heat wave this past summer, is just tragic. The BC Coroner's Service identified 569 heat-related deaths during the heat dome. Of the people who died, 79% were 65 years or older. There was a report yesterday issued by Human Rights Watch that found there was a lack of government support uh, during this period of extreme heat in BC. I'm wondering on your thoughts for, for seniors in British Columbia, of course, the, and the hundreds who died here during this heat wave, do you think there should be, what do you think we could do better about that? I mean, do you think there should be, I've heard some people argue for some sort of a registry of seniors who live alone so we, they can be checked on during a heat wave. Your thoughts? Well, I think we are re- we are reviewing it. Uh, the coroner is doing quite a bit of work and, and she will be involving this office in, in that work. Uh, and hopefully by the time we're facing this in summer 2022, uh, we'll be better armed with ways of, of protecting people. Whether that uh, is using our existing registry. So we have a lot of ways of knowing uh, who are seniors that are living alone, although it is not foolproof. So we know, you know, if you're getting the SAFER grant, we know who you are and we actually know if you live alone. Um, people who get homeowner grants, so we know who's over 65. There, there are a variety of things we can do. And I think what will be helpful is, as we examine the data more, is focusing really on who are the most vulnerable within that group and how do we get to them quickly. Yeah. We often, we, we generally have about three or four days notice of these things happening, but we don't have months of notice. So, uh, you know, we're going to have to have a plan that's that's actionable and practical. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Vancouver street crime now. The Vancouver Police Department stepping up patrols to deal with it. One of the programs they may expand, the Trespass Prevention Program. Not without controversy, though. Let's discuss with my guest, Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Sergeant Addison, thanks for coming on once again. No problem, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this uh, Trespass Prevention Program. How does this program work? 
Sure. So we all know homelessness and addiction issues are significant in Vancouver. You know, all you really have to do is take a walk around downtown core, Gastown. You'll find people huddled in doorways or under alcoves. Um, condo buildings or businesses, and they're looking for shelters. Now, before the trespass prevention program uh, pilot program started last summer, our officers were dealing with all kinds of conflicts between uh, people who were um, uh, taking shelter in doorways and under alco- uh, under um, awnings and in alcoves and members of the public. Um, we were, staff were finding their doorways blocked when they were coming to work in the morning. Customers were telling us they felt intimidated. Sometimes conflicts were escalating to the point where um, uh, police were having to be called. Quite simply, the Trespass Prevention Program allows businesses to opt in. They contact us. We give them a little triangular sticker that goes in their doorway that says they're a member of the Trespass Prevention Program. And it gives the authority to uh, officers who work in the neighbourhoods to um, approach people um, proactively who are uh, blocking entranceways, blocking uh, doorways, and encourage them to move along. It's not a, uh, and I just kind of want to correct something you said before the break, because this is, I don't want this to be portrayed as a crackdown. Um, This is a tool that we use to um, uh, mitigate conflicts that we were seeing um, with members of the public and uh, prevent them from escalating further. Okay, so when you say you encourage them to move along, like, so you just say you tell them to just move, you're trespassing, you have to move. Yeah, so typically it'll be members of our neighborhood policing teams as they're making the rounds in the morning and they'll proactively uh, approach people who they see uh, blocking an entranceway, a doorway, a building they'll um, uh, advise the uh, the people that this business is part of the trespass prevention program project and encourage them just to um, gather their stuff and move along now we're not uh, shuttling them out of the area quite simply sometimes it's just uh, asking them to move a few feet away from the doorway because the business is about to open and customers are about to come Um, and um, quite frankly the experiences that we've had have been uh, quite positive. Our offices are finding that once it's explained to uh, people and they're asked politely to move along, uh, they'll gather up their stuff and they'll they'll move along. Um, this is not this is not led to any arrests. There have been no tickets issued. Uh, quite frankly, uh, the vast majority of uh, the interactions that we have, we don't even uh, take down the name of the person we're dealing with. Uh, we're just asking them to uh, collect their stuff. Uh, to clear out a little bit because the business is opening up and we're trying to yeah. avoid um, uh, com- the conflicts that we were seeing before between uh, members of the public. Okay, what do you say to the criticism of this? And I'm sure you're familiar with it, Sergeant Addison, from some of the anti-poverty uh, groups in the city who say that this is effectively criminalizing uh, homelessness or this is hassling the poor and it's not fair. Your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> sometimes when you're homeless and you're uh, drug addicted and you're sleeping in a doorway, um, that one police contact a day is the only positive contact that these folks will have all day long. Um, we are not arresting people. This has not led to arrests. Uh, tickets are not being issued. And as I said earlier, uh, the vast majority of the time, we're not even taking down uh, a person's name. These are, uh, by and large, positive police contacts that are occurring. And our officers are actually able to steer um, people to other social services, whether it be an overdose prevention site or a shelter or another uh, type of social service in the city. So 
Uh, I have heard the criticism. Um, yeah. Much of the criticism is um, based on a, a little bit of a misunderstanding or, or misinformation about what this program actually is. Uh, what is the misunderstanding? Like, what do you think people perceive it to be that are criticizing it? Well, what I want people to understand is that it's yeah. uh, it's a proactive program, and it's uh, leading to uh, a po- it's it's uh, leading to more positive police contacts, not only between police officers and people who in, in the city who are um, who are struggling and who are hurting, yeah. but it's also mitigating conflicts between members of the public that we're requiring the police to uh, be called and often get involved. Okay. Uh, it's, not, it's not a tool that's being used for enforcement. It's not a tool that's being used to conduct street checks or to write tickets. Uh, we're simply trying to uh, resolve these conflicts, to mitigate the conflicts, and to uh, help um, encourage people to, uh, for the businesses that have opted into this program, to move along. Um, if they're if if they're uh, blocking the access or the egress to uh, to a business. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Anytime, Mike. All right, Sergeant Steve Addison there from the Vancouver Police Department talking about the Trespass Prevention Program. Right now, kind of a pilot program that's operating in parts of the city, including Chinatown, Yale Town, the West End, Coal Harbor, Vancouver Police Department, considering expanding this to all other neighborhoods in the city. It has not been without controversy, as as I mentioned. Let's check in now with Laura Albina. Laura is with the Defund 604 Network. Laura, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks, Mike. I just want to be clear. My name is Laurel Albina, and Laurel, I want to be really right. yeah, no problem. Sorry. I want to be really clear about who we're talking about exactly when we talk about folks who are asked to quote unquote move along. Right? These are our most vulnerable community members, and their family members, their siblings, their parents, their grandparents, their children, and each one of these people belong, and they deserve dignity. And these folks are people who are navigating poverty. They're navigating mental health concerns and, of course, drug use and addiction, right? And disproportionately, they're Indigenous folks and they're people of color. So, so who are we talking about? We're talking about our most vulnerable community members, our most beloved community members. And these folks aren't criminals, right? These are folks who are making the absolute best decisions they have available to them to seek shelter to find some privacy, to find a place to use the bathroom, to find a place to use drugs, and to, quite frankly, be mentally ill, right? And we need to ask ourselves, why are these vulnerable community members, why are they in public outdoor space? Right. What, what, do, you, what do you think of the police program and, and asking them to move along? And we really just have not prioritized funding no barrier indoor space. So the police program is actually just a complete waste of money, right? We have people who are living under awnings and on sidewalks because they have nowhere else to live and congregate and socialize, right? This is a fundamental issue of no barrier, low-cost housing. This is a waste of money. We We have public money being spent on essentially hired thugs for private businesses. That is the program. Hired? Wait, wait a sec. Wait a sec. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait a sec. Hired? Wait a sec. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's a waste of public money. Okay, so you're calling the police... Hang on, Laurel. You're calling... You're saying the police are thugs in this program? listen. This program is a surface level. 
It's a Band-Aid solution, and it's yeah. never going to address the root cause of systemic and intergenerational poverty, right? And yeah. we are morally called and fiscally obligated to spend our public money better. But right? if you so, but if you own a hang on if you own or operate a store, right, and you've got someone who's blocking your doorway and doing drugs or maybe going to the mm-hmm. bathroom or lighting a fire, I mean, we've heard we've heard all yeah. kinds of stories like this. I mean, if someone who's experiencing that, they're trying to run a business or they're trying to enter their own home, if it's the doorway of a condominium building, building or something, mm-hmm. is it not reasonable to expect people to move along because you're impacting someone else's life? So let me be clear. Let's yeah. unpack two parts of that. The, the idea of moving along, and I just want to say, okay, to where, right? Question mark. But really what I want to say first is what uh, Deputy Chief Howard Chow what he told the board and what he said to other senior officers, including uh, Adam Palmer and previous chiefs, right? They've all expressed that the crisis of public drug use, mental illness, and homelessness are just not the jurisdiction of the VPD. So this is out of the mouth of Deputy Chief Howard Chow, that public drug use, mental illness, and homelessness is not the jurisdiction of the VPD. So that's the well, crisis that we're facing. That's why people are sitting in awnings and doing drugs under in, in alcoves is because there is a, a larger societal problem at play. And if we only have, right, if we only have a hammer, everything we see is going to be a nail, right? And the police are just one tool in a very large toolbox. And frankly, we need to fund many other parts of the toolbox, okay. right? Yeah. So okay. What else? What else okay. can we fund? Okay. Well, we I'm fund. sure there's there's a long list of things we could fund for sh- for sure, and I, I agree with you on that part of it. Laurel, thank you for coming on today in the in the brief period of time we have here. I do appreciate your time. All right. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Mike Hall. This guy is amazing. His passion for old classic cars is just extraordinary. Maybe you've seen his reality TV show, Rust Valley Restorers on the History Channel. There are huge changes happening at Rust Valley. Mike is standing by to talk about that. But first, take a listen here to the trailer for season three here of Rust Valley Restorers. Have a listen. Gentlemen, start your engines. The boys are back in the valley. But before they can drive them, they have to restore them. Get the torches. I was like, what? I think we got most of the kinks ironed out. It's not my job to keep Mike in line financially anymore. I'll say a prayer. Okay, that's uh, Rust Valley Restores. Mike Hall on the line from Tappan, B.C. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good, Mike. How are you guys? Beautiful sunny day here in the Shoe Swamp, man. I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. And Rust Valley Restorers, your place there, the Field of Dreams, all your old cars is just amazing. The show is great. Can you tell me, how did you get into this? Because when you, when you, what you see on the TV show is extraordinary, all these old cars lying out in that field. How did this start for you? Well, it started when I was a kid. I grew up looking at all these. I was born in 57. And when I, once I hit about 20, I started buying junk. And then I kept buying more junk. And, like, basically the last four properties I bought have been because I had too much junk in the one property. And finally I ended up owning a wrecking yard, and I could shove 500 in there. (laughs) (laughs) How many cars did you have at your peak? Well, uh, before we, uh, when we called the auction, I was at 562. Wow. 
Wow, 562. What would you say was the most rare or valuable car you ever had? That's a hard one. I've had a lot of rare stuff. I mean, wow. my 68 big block SF I've had for uh, 40 years, but I've got some Mopars that are one of one. Like I've got a couple 71, 340 Air Grabber Super Bs. They only ever built eight. I've got some convertible big block Dodges. They only built 30 or 40 of uh, just there's a whole bunch of rare stuff. I mean, there was there was a lot of American muscle cars that they never built lots of, and yeah. thankfully I managed to save, preserve, protect, and uh, put in stasis until somebody finally came and bought them. I guess. Okay, I know you love them all, Mike. Speaking to Mike Hall from Rust Valley Restorers. So, Mike, let's let's talk about what has happened here at Rust Valley. They had an, an auction on the weekend, and what you, I think you sold most of your cars, right? Are most of them gone now? Most of them sold? Yes. Well, basically, I think there was about 470 or 480 we put up for auction, and I think they all sold except two or three. I mean, wow. some of them didn't sell for much. Some went for way more than what I expected. And some of them I took a bleep kicking on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike, why did you decide to auction off all your, all your stuff? Okay, well, for, I mean, the, the whole reason the show started was five years ago. I decided, what am I going to do with 500 cars? I mean, one day you wake up in life and realize everything you thought you own, it actually owns you. So for the last five years, I've had the place put up with the cars. Three times I thought I had it sold, and finally I said, Mike, if you want to get rid of these cars, sell the land. Well, I sold the five acres in six days. Okay, that's amazing, Mike. And I know this is, what's that been like for you to sell all these beloved cars that you've had for so long? I mean, I guess that's been a, is it like a bittersweet experience for you? What's it been like? Well, well it has been bittersweet. Some have moved me to, to tears, but I mean, like basically right now we've got to load out 500 cars. We're there 12 hours a day loading out cars now because I mean, People are buying cars with no front ends, no rear ends. They're buying a car because they need a door and a fender to finish their project. I mean, the thing is, with all these cars, the average age of them is 50-plus years old. You don't go to an auto wrecker and find these cars. So, I mean, but I think there's a lot of sadness, but there's a lot of joy knowing somebody's going to do something with these cars. Like, what right do I have to own 500 when there's thousands of people out there that would give their left testicle to own a muscle car <laughs> well they got a chance to buy them no reserve whatever the car was worth that day that's what people paid so in a way it's a re it's a pretty joyful thing as well as really sad what was the highest price that got paid for one of your cars uh basically the highest price i think was the red 71 camaro we built on on the show that went to a lovely gentleman in ontario i think he paid sixty-two thousand. Wow. Buyers fees for everything. By the time he gets that out to Ontario, it's probably costing him seventy-five thousand bucks. Whoa, whoa. Okay, yeah, but it's a that's a pretty penny. But I'm sure he's very happy. Speaking of Mike Hall from Rust Valley Restorers, Mike, uh, what was the lowest price that one of the cars sold for? Twenty-five bucks. <laughs> Twenty-five. <laughs> so like, the, like the auction guy says, Mike, you're going to win. You're going to lose. What you got to do is look at the aggregate. Well, based on the aggregate, I got what I wanted for the land and cars when I first lifted it. So basically, I ended up with exactly what I wanted. It's just a hell of a lot more work than I wanted to do. Okay, how many are left? I mean, did you sell everything or do you got a few left? 
Well, I was supposed to keep 10, and it ended up at slightly over 50. Okay. <laughs> okay, so you've, well, downs you've downsized from 500 to 50. What, what are you planning to do with those 50 cars you have left? Well, they're still talking about doing the show. These guys want to ride me like a rented mule until I'm dead, I think. But, I mean, History Channel, I mean, we're, we're still filming uh, as we speak. So, I mean, I had to keep some, and some I just could not let go. I mean, some of these cars I packed around for 40 years, Yeah. right? They were just, there was a lot of emotion. I mean, some of them I drug down into the field to sell, and then I drag them back and not sell them. Then I drug them back in the field to sell, and then I drag them back to keep. So it's been a pretty hectic last month. Me just Like I said, I told the guys I keep 10. I basically, I kept a full deck of cards and a couple of jokers. <laughs> okay okay mike i know uh the history channel has been there filming the whole thing the whole auction and i guess that when will that be coming out on the history channel so people can see it okay it's going to be on history amazon stack i mean i'm pretty sure uh motor motor trend magazines uh picking this up too and that's way above my pay grade you have to talk to the pr guys at history basically i'm a mushroom keep me in the dark feed me nothing but crap and make some great tv that's my job <laughs> well it certainly is a great tv show i'm i'm glad you still have 10 cars how did you decide which which uh which cars to which cars to keep well i kept 50 i started 50, right 50 <laughs> yeah 50 um, well i don't know i mean some that went at the auction it was like getting kicked right between uh, between the legs because i mean every one of those cars was a dream yeah. it's like the song goes dreams never die just a dreamer well it was hard letting go of those dreams, but my dreams became somebody else's dream. So the dreams never died. They just got transferred to somebody else. And there were just some I couldn't let go. I mean, it was, it was a hard choice. I don't know. It was just some I said, I'm keeping that. I'm not keeping that. Cause I mean, I'm 65 years old to do a car by yourself is a year. Am I going to be building cars when I'm 300? I don't think so. So, I mean, I had to make a choice and basically I kept some of that sentimental value some that I know are really big dollar cars and some that are super rare. Hey, Mike, why do I have a feeling that the 50 cars you have left uh, may grow from there and maybe at some point you'll be back to 500? No, because no? real estate is way too expensive up here now. <laughs> <laughs> do people come by? Your, your show has been really successful and popular. I mean, do you get people coming by and visiting? They want to visit the place. They want to, they want to see the Field of Dreams. They want to see Rust Valley. Every day we get people yeah. from all... I mean, before COVID struck, some days we had people from three different continents on the same day. Wow. We got people from Indonesia, from South America, from uh, Africa, from Europe. Uh, like it was, I mean, it was nuts. And they were all just happy to see me and like see the shop. We give them tours. I mean, it's really hard to explain. I mean, the show was supposed to be about rock scaling. It ended up about cars. <laughs> and it's just it's, it's it's a pretty weird thing i mean i know why famous people buy an island and lock themselves up i mean i can't go to a gas station in northern bc without somebody wanting to take a selfie because they watch the show <laughs> and they love what we do and they've got an old car in the field that they've been looking at for 20 years mike it's been a great ride and i've really enjoyed talking to you today the show is great and i hope we see we hear more about uh, rust valley in the future man thanks a lot for coming on today thanks a lot like i said stay tuned to history you'll be seeing what we're up to and thank you very much for for, for your interest mike you guys right. have a great day